Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. We are the official podcast of Tennis Canada, also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And we have now wrapped up the fortnight. The U.S. Open is in the books, and we have one repeat champion in Naomi Osaka and one brand new Grand Slam champion on the men's side in Dominic Team, Mike. And not only do we wrap up a, a crazy couple weeks of Grand Slam action under unique circumstances, of course, and we'll talk about that in a bit, but we've also got a, a really great guest on the podcast this week and, and one that we've known about for some time, but we wanted to hold off to the U.S. Open because what better time to talk to our guest this week, Jimmy Connors. Yeah, yeah, absolutely perfect uh, U.S. Open guest. And I think the best way uh, to do this is, is let our listeners enjoy the tennis legend as, as we spoke to him. And then we'll debrief on uh, the great U.S. Open run at Flushing Meadows the, that we saw over the past two weeks. So without further ado, here's our interview with tennis great Jimmy Connors. This week, we are pleased to welcome on the podcast one of the greatest players in the history of our sport. He holds the record for the most singles titles in the open era with 109. Most ever match wins with 1,274. He has eight career Grand Slams, and he also has the most matches ever won at the U.S. Open with 98. And uh, to me, he's one of the best competitors to ever set foot on a tennis court. My first tennis memories were watching the U.S. Open in the mid-80s with my dad, and the player who captivated my attention right away was none other than our guest today, Jimmy Connors. Uh, I had the chance to talk with Jimmy in Montreal back in 2011 when he was inducted into the Rogers Cup Hall of Fame, and uh, the chance to interview him right now uh, for our own podcast is something that's just really special for me. Jimmy, welcome to Matchpoint Canada. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, good to be with you. How guys? Are you doing Okay. Everybody good? We're doing good. We got no complaints. Uh, currently enjoying U.S. Open tennis. So uh, it's, it's just great to have it back again front and center. And it seems fitting to me that we should talk to you during the U.S. Open where you won five of your eight Grand Slams. Uh, this is the place that people universally associate you with, obviously. Do you get nostalgic this time of year? And uh, if so, what do you generally flash back to from your time uh, at Flushing Meadows? Well, you know, of course, uh, this time of year, you know, for for the twenty something years that I played professional tennis, you know, my my schedule was not a, a day or a week or a month. It was all around certain events, and you know, so certainly, this is my birthday time. This is the U.S. Open time. So, you know, to you know to be able to sit back now and to to watch the U.S. Open, even though. Uh, not many people in the crowd, you know, which is a shame, but, you know, you're still getting the tennis and, and, uh, and, and something to get on television. But, yeah, of course I'm nostalgic at this time. It's, it, it's been 29 years since I played the U.S. Open, but those memories and, and, and what it took to get there and, and to be able to play the event, to play it at a high level, to play against the great players that I had the opportunity to play against, there was nothing like it. So miss it every day. Uh, so I got to point out and, and, and pinpoint, of course, 1991, which your magical run to the semifinals at the age of 39. And now that I'm 40, that doesn't seem so old to me anymore. But, yeah, uh, exactly. I, I don't think any memory stands out to me from my childhood as much as watching that run that you had. And I can't think of anyone off the top of my head who, as a great champion, is, is still remembered uh, for, for a loss, for a tournament that, that he didn't win. And yet that seems to be the case 
the one that really stands out for people, they talk about that run, even though you, your run ended in the semis that year. Uh, how many times a week do you get approached to talk about that, that moment? And, uh, and, and how does it, you know, what special place does it occupy for you to this day? Well, certainly uh, it's, it's what most, like you're asking that question now. So, you know, for that to, to still be on the mind of people 29, almost 30 years later is something pretty special. Uh, you know, but I think, I, I think that was looked at back then very differently. Uh, I was 39. Most guys at 39 are being pushed aside, being told to retire. Your, your, your time's up. You've, you've had a good run, so move on. Uh, and, and I just come off reconstructive wrist surgery. So my being able to play even at that time was, was questionable. Uh, so it, it transcended more than just the tennis. It, it, it got, you know, people off the couch who said, well, I'm 40, you know, or I'm 42 or I'm 36 or whatever. I'm getting old. I can't, you know, I can't go out and do things like I used to. And, and, and I, you know, I, I feel bad afterwards. And so is the pain worth it as, as we were talking about just a couple of minutes ago. And, and, and so, you know, to, you know, for me, that, that's what I did. That's what I wanted to do. And I didn't want to be told that I had to stop playing. I was going to do everything I could to, to come off of that wrist injury and end on my own terms. But, but that run, even though I did not win the tournament, was, and I've said many, many times, was the most exciting 11 days of my, of my career. And, and it, it's always at the end. Uh, you know, and, and the way I look at it, because, you know, I wasn't expected to do that. You know, when I was in my early 20s and 30s, you know, in the U.S. Open came along, Wimbledon came along. If, you know, if my name wasn't in the semifinals or the finals, something was wrong. Uh, and, you know, so at the end, when you're not expected to and coming off, uh, you know, a, a year off and, and, uh, and everything that I had gone through to, to be able to start playing, you know, I, I felt if I had a chance to get into that tournament that, that I had somebody else behind me pushing me and, and, and that was the crowd. And, and when I say that that was the best 11 days of my career, the crowd made it that way because the noise that I got from that stadium over the course of that run, the sound I've never heard, I'd never heard before. And I played a lot of big matches, you know, leading up to, to that time in my career, but the noise that that New York crowd made, was deafening and, and but but for me I waited 20 years to get that and, and and once they gave me that that you know I knew then it was time to go uh, that that I had reached the, the the top of the hill as far as what I was looking for out of the game and uh, it was pretty exciting and, and Jimmy it's it's almost ironic to hear you talk about you know deafening crowds and the electricity and atmosphere in a stadium and of course we miss that right now as we're watching the U.S. Open and I'm just curious for you as an athlete you've you've had the ability to feel the energy from the crowd have them kind of push you on and maybe even reach in and, and find that next level because of their energy what do you think it would maybe be like right now if you were trying to navigate playing a grand slam without the presence of those fans which uh, the athletes are doing right now? Yeah, you know, uh, I, I've thought about that, and, and I, you know, one side of my brain said it would be a little bit difficult, uh, but the other side uh, for me is I went out and I practiced every day like I was playing the finals of a Wimbledon or the finals of a U.S. Open, and, and that's the kind of effort and energy I put into it. Maybe I didn't play for three or four hours, but what I put into it was, was certainly a, a high level, uh, you know, but to keep that 
you know, with no feedback, you know, from a crowd, you know, might be tough, might have, might have been difficult. So that would have been a change. But, uh, it, it, you know, it's like going out on your backyard. If you have a court in your backyard and, you know, and, and grabbing onto one of your uh, competitors, like for me to play Borg or Mac or Lindell or Nastasia or something, and say, okay, let's play three out of five on my backyard court. You know, it, which, you know how, how would you handle that? And I think that's what they're going through now with no, uh, no crowd in the stands. But you have to remember, they've got how many millions of people watching on TV? So that's their drive now that they have to get into their mind that we're still performing for a major audience. And, uh, you know, if we can't get up for that, then something's wrong. Yeah, you're, you're actually just reminding me of a, a few years ago, Maria Sharapova, back from a, her drug suspension, she was placed on center court, which a few of the athletes didn't like. And I loved how after the match, she said, well, I can't control that, but put me on a tennis court in the parking lot and I'll compete. I'm, I'm good to go anywhere. <laughs> yeah, so of think- course. You know, that's, that's in your blood. Right. You know, that competition and, and that striving for excellence, uh, that's what you go out on that center court for. And, you know, whether it's a backcourt, a center court or whatever, you still got the pride in your game and your performance. And, and uh, uh, you know, they, but it, and you're seeing that now, you know, with the, some of the matches that are played at the U.S. Open, the, the way, you know, the, the, the fight and the grind and the grit that a lot of the players are are showing and, uh, you know, coming back from two sets down and two sets to one and five, one down and coming back and winning in five. And, you know, so, you know, opportunity is knocking here for, for a lot of the young guys to, uh, uh, and, and, and young, young women to, to win this U.S. Open. And, and that should be drive enough in itself to, to go out and perform. But uh, it, it's fun. I, I'm enjoying watching the surrounding stories uh, around this U.S. Open, you know, number one, like we're talking about, no crowd, how they handle that, you know, how do they get up, how do they accept uh, uh, little things that go on on the court, there's no noise, so, you know, what, what's pushing them, what's driving them, so a lot of uh, outlying stories that, uh, that are pretty interesting. Yeah, and I, I have to ask just uh, from, from you watching, and, you know, we're high on our Canadian tennis players here. Obviously, we had a Grand Slam champion on the women's side last year in Bianca, and, and Denis Shapovalov, of course, we love. He's had a great run. Um, is there any, you know, particular ingredients you look for when you're looking for, at, at young players and, and trying to pick out who's going to be that next star and, and anybody come to mind right now who, who really impresses you a lot? Yeah, you've got a good run. You you had three uh, three Canadians in the men's in the was it the round of sixteen or, or right. uh, the quarterfinals? Yeah. So yeah, round of sixteen. Uh, you know that's a that's a good run. And and you know I look at that. I, who would have ever thought that that you know? And I say this with great respect that that Canada would have you know outplayed the U.S. to you know in in the number of of players in the the round of sixteen of the U.S. Open, and and that's happened. So what you guys are doing up there certainly must be working. Uh, you know, but I, I did uh, I did a, our podcast uh, the other night with uh, with my son Brett, and and I, and I picked your guy to win the tournament. I did, uh, yeah. you know, and and, and uh, I, I think you know with uh, uh, Novak uh, 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 taken out of the tournament, I think his chances are are tremendous. You know, and he's playing good tennis uh, to boot. So, all a matter of how they go about it. You know, when, when uh, Djokovic was in the tournament, it was almost, oh boy, you know, we got to get through him. And oh, is that, that's almost impossible. He's 28 no or whatever, you know, coming into this year. But now that's all opened up. And given 
a lot of hope to to a lot of these young guys. And and as my son Brett said uh, the other night, he says this is the first year, and he and I can't remember how many years that somebody in their twenties now is going to win uh, win this Grand Slam. You know, it's been Rafa, it's been Novak, it's been Roger, uh, Warinka, uh, Murray. So now some one of these uh, good you know, young talents that's coming up is going to have a chance to put U.S. Open by their name. But, you know, I, I picked your guy. I, I picked uh, uh, Shappy, you know, to come through and, and to win. So, you know, don't let me down now. You're, you're <laughs> saying the right things, Jimmy. And just for the record, no, we did, we did I do. not I'm pay not Jimmy. I'm because to... I'm on with you. I'm not yeah, saying I know. that. You know, I've got, you know, listen, I'm, I'm a tennis guy, you know, and, and I, I like a kid who goes out there and, and, you know, if you can't get into the grind, get into the fight and get into the, uh, the excitement of, of, of your position now in this tournament. You're in the second week. You can't win a tournament in the, in the first week, but you can sure lose it. You know, now, now you're in the second week, and, and you know, the, it's not a 128 draw now. Now you're in it, – it's exciting. It's exciting that, uh, you know, to, to watch these young guys and how they perform, and, and if, they, if they let – this opportunity get to them too much or they handle it and, and understand what they have and, and go on and come through. It's going to be a fun second week. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned your podcast and I do want to get to that a little bit later as well, but I was listening to this week's episode between you and Brett and you talked about back in the day when you were playing and you called it the wild west and uh, you were obviously someone who never shied away from a little showmanship back in the day. It seems to me while the tennis these days is as good as we've ever seen it on the court, players are maybe a little bit less willing to, to show their personalities to the fans. And I'm just wondering how you find tennis from an entertainment perspective today. And if there's anyone from the current generation of players that you think would uh, fit right in with your band of characters from the seventies and eighties. Yeah. You know, first of all, they all play great tennis. Uh, you know, they, they've come up and, and uh, you know, with the equipment and the strings and the training and, and, you know, they, they have every opportunity to be as good, if not better uh, that they really should be, uh, you know, if they go about it the right way and, and take advantage of all the opportunities. You know, the, the personality has been taken out of the game, and, and it seems to me it's almost by design. Uh, I, I look back and I say the Wild West, and, uh, you, know, you know, we were walking a thin line, and do we fall off? Of course we did, uh, of course, but that's, that's what drew a, a different kind of fan into the game of tennis. You know, it went from a country club sport, you know, to get the hockey fan and the baseball fan, the football fan. I mean, it's like, you know, do you go to a hockey game to watch the hockey? I mean, I know you do, you know, where you guys are, but not me. I went to see the fights, you know, in, in the action. So, uh, and, and along the way, I knew of hockey and, and learned of hockey and, and understood it. But, you know, it was the action that, uh, that, that created a, a different atmosphere. So when they went from Forest Hills, uh, over to Flushing Meadows, you know, I, I love the tradition of Forest Hills. It was, it was a beautiful walk to the center court across the grass courts and, you know, the small clubhouse. But, you know, once we outgrew that and went to the concrete over there in, in Flushing Meadows, that fit right into my personality. You know, but like I said, you know, it was a different time. We had guys, we had characters, we had the, the charisma, we had guys who were a little bit crazy, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, just kind of flew off the handle and, and rightfully so. But because of that, you know, we kind of brought in all these rules now, 
and, and, and they had to do something, you know, to kind of make, make the game flow and, and, and to, you know, get, get all these guys going in a, in a direction uh, that, that might limit their personality a little bit. But what they've done is the rules, and, and I, I said this the other night to Brad, is now maybe they should be looked at also. They looked at us and, and made the rules. Now maybe the rules are a little bit too stringent. Yeah, you know, good, to give that's the, a good point. To, and, to give uh, these guys a, a, you know, a little freedom to, you know, to be themselves and, and to, to, to show their enjoyment, but even more so to, to bring the people back down onto the court, the, the fans down on the court playing with them, and to think that, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm following uh, uh, whoever, you know, Zarev or, or Sitsipas or, or whoever, and, and I'm down there playing with him. I want him to win so bad, I'm down there on the court with him. And, and, and I think they're missing that, you know, right now. So, you know, maybe things will change a little bit because I think these guys, this new generation of young players are looking to break out, you know, and, and I've said that, you know, I wish these guys would start step, stepping forward now when Nadal and Federer and, and uh, uh, Novak are, are, are playing instead of just letting them go away and somebody sliding in to be number one just because somebody has to be. Let them start taking their, their place in the game now. And, uh, and, and this tournament's a great opportunity for them right now. Yeah, starting absolutely. Here. Well said. Um, Jimmy, when you left the game, when, when your career ended, we saw you at times in tennis still involved with some legends events and then uh, coaching as well with the likes of Andy Roddick. And uh, you helped out with Canada's Jeannie Bouchard for a little bit there too. And then at times we haven't seen you as closely associated with the sport either. And I'm just kind of giving another read to your book, The Outsider, and I'm just going to quote from it. Writing this book almost pisses me off because I have to go back and remember how I spent my life doing something that I genuinely loved and now it's over. Can you talk about your relationship with tennis now and, and what kind of space it takes up in your life? Well, <laughs> certainly when you play the game, it's, uh, you know, it is your life. Uh, and, and everything that, uh, that, that I did around my days was, uh, was for the tennis. Uh, you know, now, you know, that certainly has changed. And, and uh, uh, I have other interests. I have business interests. Uh, you know, do I still love tennis? I do. Uh, I still watch tennis. I'm, I'm, I'm not as involved in tennis right now as, as maybe I will be coming up in six months or eight months or a year from now. But uh, that doesn't mean that it's ever taken away the way I have felt about this game. You know, this game has given me everything and more than I ever dreamed of. And, 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 and the first thing was when my mom gave it to me, gave me something that I actually love to play and love to do. Uh, and, and so that will never, ever leave. So, but I needed a break uh, one, once, I, uh, once I stopped, because when I stopped playing the regular tour, I was 40. Then I started a senior tour uh, and brought back the likes of Borg and Vilas and, and uh, Jose Luis Clerk and John Lloyd and Eddie Dibbs and all the guys that I played with. And we had a very successful 10-year run with that. So basically played until I was 50. And, and you know, to, to have my, my wife and, and my kids allow me to do that, you know, it was time to pull back and, and let them, you know, be, be the ones that were front and center. They allowed me to do my job, which certainly was my job, but uh, that's an awful long career to have uh, and, and to play at a high level and, and to, to get uh, and to be able to put that much into it. So uh, 
did I did I need a break? Sure, I needed a break, but that doesn't mean I ever lost the love for the game. I and uh, and that still runs as deep as it always has. That's uh, certainly great to hear. And you know, we we touched on the the run at the U.S. Open that that came later in your career. But uh, I, I'm curious about your uh, your special season actually early on in your career, 1974. I, I read an interesting stat just the other day noting first Grand Slam titles won by each generation in every decade. And uh, they noted actually your Australian Open title in 1974. And then of course you went on to also win Wimbledon and the US Open that year. Uh, what do you remember from that particular season which was obviously you know one of the best we've ever seen and I, I'm also curious how how were you able to just maintain such a such a longevity in terms of deep runs at Grand Slams over and over again? Well I, you know you always look at your first right and and uh, going back and, and I, I was playing some good tennis when I first turned pro when I was 19 but but I, I hasn't I hadn't really filled out yet uh, I, I was still growing and and, uh, and and maturing. I hate that word, you know. But but uh, and not mentally, but physically. And right. I, I, you know, and getting a little bit stronger. Uh, and, and over the course of the years, when uh, the first couple of years, I, you know, I felt that in my game. And and my my two coaches, my mom and and Pancho Segura, uh, they saw that in me. And and then at that time, weren't afraid to push me to another level of giving me uh, uh, more things uh, to, to incorporate into my game and, and, and to, to work on so that, you know, that when I was, you know, ready and, and, and strong enough to go in, that it would be there. And, and, and I, I wouldn't have to work on it at, on the fly, that it was already ingrained in me in my game. So um, that year to me, I, I, you know, I, I wish I could have had, a, you know, a couple more years like that, but, it, you know, virtually impossible. I think I won like 15 tournaments that year and, you know, one, uh, one Australia uh, was kept out of the French, you know, basically uh, then when Wimbledon and the U.S. Open had a chance to win the Grand Slam, uh, you know, but, you know, who knows? That's, that's, a, that's another thing we can talk about some other time. But, we'll save that you know, for your next uh, appearance with us, Jimmy. Yeah, that would be right. good. Uh, that, that would be good. You know, but but you always remember the first, and and that was the first push that uh, uh, that got me going. And and I I had a sophomore hangover though. The next year I got all three finals again and lost all three finals, but then regained my form and and my work ethic, uh, and and was able to uh, you know go on and, and try to keep that level for the twenty my twenty years. But I I credit. Uh, my mom really with, with my longevity because she never burned me out. She allowed me to, to play the tennis because she knew that the most important thing for me was to be the weekend player and, and get to the semis and the finals. So uh, she wanted me to always be eager to play. So she would not let me play, you know, six tournaments, seven tournaments in a row. It was always two tournaments, three tournaments, take a break. You know, you've expended the energy and, and you've had success. So, pull back a little bit, rest, do some things you want to do. And when I went to play and to train and to work at my tennis, I was always eager and excited to do that. So she handled me, you know, back in those days, which allowed me to, you know, to play for 20, 25 years or whatever at that level. She, she did a great job with me. I just want to point out a sophomore slump of three Grand Slam finals. <laughs> Sounds pretty darn good, honestly. That's I would take that as a slump. Well, <laughs> That's not too well, bad. Yeah, but you got to remember back in those days. You know, we were fighting for that little 
uh, front page news. We were up against great hockey players, football yeah. players, baseball, you know, and all that. So, you know, after a year like I had in 74, they were awful quick to write me off too. Right, you, right. Know, the, you know, so uh, it was uh, – it, it was a great time to be be around and playing and uh, playing with the group of guys that I had the opportunity to play with. Yeah, and, and now, you know, in, in the game, particularly in this era, because we do have three of the greatest we've ever seen in, in Roger, Rafa, Novak, the, the obsession seems to be over that Grand Slam race. Federer at 20, Nadal at 19, Djokovic at 17. And I'm just curious for you because in your era uh I, I don't think the grand slam number and that tally was was nearly as talked about uh as as it is today um do you wish in hindsight maybe you knew that this this sort of ultimate achievement would always be on everybody's mind um and maybe you would have played some some more australian opens if that were the case well, you know, back in back when when all this started back in the 70s it was it was every match Right. you know, that was important. You know, now the Grand Slams have taken over. Uh, I, I played the Australian Open twice. Uh, I, I missed, you know, six or seven years of the French Open, you know, at the, at the height of my career. So basically, I, I, I made my, my name and my reputation off of two tournaments, mm -hmm. uh, the U.S. Open in, in Wimbledon. And, you know, the, the records that I had of semi or whatever, I, you know, I, I don't even know. You know, but but that was done off of two tournaments. Now these guys, uh, you know, they're playing four tournaments. So what took me 20 years to play maybe 50 Grand Slam tournaments, these guys are doing, you know, four a year. So listen, it, it, it's all about what's going on now. Yeah. You know, that's the way it, it's that's the way it is in all sports. You know, the greatest of all time are now. You know, basketball, the greatest is LeBron. Well, I don't know about that. You know, but that's but that's what makes uh, talking sports so interesting. You know, you talk about Rafa and, and Roger and, and, uh, uh, and Novak now, but, you know, but that's because they play now. You don't know what happened 30, 40 years ago against uh, the, the greats of uh, Pete Sampras and, and uh, uh, Stefan Edberg and Boris Becker. And then, you know, uh, and even further back than that, but Borg and McEnroe and Lindell and Panada and Nastasi. So, you know, it's, that's what makes sports so exciting to, to, to watch and to see what goes on today and how things have changed and what, what have made these players now great today. And going back, what would have happened if we would have had this training back then and this equipment back then and how we would have handled it. So, you know, that's, you know, it's always going to be a toss up on, uh, on, on who you think is the best in any sport, but it's always now that takes precedent. Jimmy, there's so many topics I feel like me and Ben, ben could get lost in talking to you. Um, just enjoying this so much. And uh, we know you are on a, a bit of a time frame here. So I want to ask before we wrap up about a new venture that you and your son have started, which is your very own podcast called Advantage Connors. And I think the name is very appropriate for you. Uh, can you talk about how that came to be and how much fun it must be for you and your son to get together and, and do something like that? Yeah, it was all by accident. Uh, you know, when COVID uh, came around and and uh, we, we had gotten it started and we were to go down to Palm Springs uh, and, and interview Mike Tyson. Uh, then the tournament was canceled and, and Mike Tyson, still under his obligation, he said he would come in and to do our podcast, came anyway, wow. you know, which was, which was spectacular. So, but it, it came by a whim. We just said, let's, let's, let's get on a podcast and start talking about sports or, you know, but we're not just hooked into just one thing. 
we, we talk everything. We talk all sports. We talk, you know, cooking. We talk everything. Uh, you know, that's, uh, uh, that's, that, that's been kind of fun to do, you know, uh, you know, under COVID, what are you going to do? I, I'm reading. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm cooking. I'm, I'm learning how to use the internet. I'm learning how to do a lot of things. So, you know, I mean, it's given me an opportunity, but doing the podcast with Brett is great because he keeps me current in so many things. He, do, he does the TV. Uh, he's at the U S open doing the TV now. So he is up on every tennis match, every person, every, the way they play and, and everything, which is, so he keeps me current, not only in this, but in all sports, and, 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 and for me, uh, my son and, and, you know, he traveled with me since he's been, you know, six months old and, and he's been around sports all his life. He's been around gambling his whole life. And, and that's what we talk. And it, it's just like we sit down and have a conversation and, and talk about things that people are thinking about and talking about, you know, out, outside of our podcast. And, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's been really fun and, and advantage Connors, uh, the podcast that we have is, uh, is really, it's taken off and it, it, it's getting a little traction now. Uh, I'm looking forward for things to happen with, uh, with COVID and the lockdown and how this is handled so we can start getting out and around more and, and, and broaden our horizons also to start uh, interviewing people from other sports and other walks of life and, and uh, you know, bringing them in and, and finding out what's important to them. But it's been fun working with Brett and, and he's, uh, he, he's never at a loss for words, which for me is, uh, I wonder uh, where he is, gets that from. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. He, time for him to take over. Give me a break. Time for yeah. him to take over. And, and it's well, a blast. We've enjoyed listening to it and uh, look forward to future guests. We'll definitely plug it on our Twitter for you guys too. Not that you need any more attention than you're probably already getting. And, uh, looking forward to seeing maybe some Canadian guests on there too, at some point. Well, we're going to get out there and work it out. We'd love to do it, but you guys yeah. have been great. Glad we could work this out and I could be with you. Thank yeah, you so Jimmy. much, Jimmy. Thank you and so much. Go ahead. Take care. Look forward to having you back at some point down the road. Be a pleasure. There you have it. Our interview with tennis legend, American Jimmy Connors. And obviously, Mike, when he said his pick was Denis Shapovalov to win the U.S. Open, I was very, very excited, thinking maybe maybe this is something that's possible. Of course, it uh, didn't go down that way, but uh, speaking highly of Dennis is, is a great sign. And uh, he was just so, so welcoming and, and friendly to us the whole time. And, and I was really appreciative of that. You told me afterwards that you were a little bit surprised at what Jimmy Connors was like, eh? Yeah, so I, I mean, to be fair, they're not, I mean, Jimmy Connors was your era growing up. I, whoa, I whoa, whoa, I, stop, T.O., T.O., okay. back it up there. He was a little bit before my era. Okay, okay. Uh, right. I mean, my first, Very end. <laughs> my first memories of watching tennis when I was like six, seven years old were of a, a Jimmy Connors towards the end of his career. Um, right. I, I wish I had been a little bit older to catch, you know, the full effect of his era, as he mentioned it, the Wild West, because it was a crazy time in tennis with so much personality. And, uh, and, and it's funny because he was so different back then for the bulk of his career from the guy that you and me spoke with. And even from the guy in 1991 that captured everybody's hearts with that run to the semifinals at the age of 39. For most of his career, he was a brat and, and he'd be the first to admit that. And, um, and so he'd really done sort of and experienced a, a total reversal in public perception in the way that he finished his career. And, and the guy we spoke to and, and who you guys just listened to was just, 
I mean, I could talk to him for, for hours upon hours. Um, he was, he was so much fun to speak to. Yeah. And you, you can tell this is where him and his son, uh, would have had the idea for this podcast. This is somebody when you, when you talk to Jimmy, you could just get the sense he loves talking sports. He loves being one of the guys and discussing great stories in sport and doesn't have to be tennis. I think he's well-rounded in that regard and just loves chatting about different storylines and different great athletes and, and great generations, uh, whatever the sport may be. But uh, you're right. I, I mean, I never had the opportunity as a kid to, to watch Jimmy Connors live and get that experience. But I think in my consciousness, I had the sense that like, oh, wasn't he like one of those guys, like an unbelievable player, but a total jerk or something like that and never of course having known him at all personally and certainly never anticipated getting the opportunity to actually speak with him personally so for him to be so kind on the chat not just in the interview like right when we got on the call on zoom he was so friendly and welcoming and you could tell um he was happy to share his time with us when i first met jimmy connors it was uh, 2011 at the coop rogers in montreal and he was being inducted into the uh, rogers cup hall of fame that summer and uh, in the press, um, I had asked a question, and I was still relatively new being in tennis media at the time. And I asked a question, and then I had a follow-up to it, but I got cut off by some more experienced uh, reporter. And Jimmy stopped him and said, well, wait a minute, Mike still has another question, so I'd like him to have the chance to, to ask it. And uh, I'll never forget that moment. That kind of gave me a little bit of a you know, confidence boost, pumped the tires mm-hmm. a little, and I uh, really appreciated you know, a legend of the sport again, who, who would do that for me. So that's one of my memories in media of Jimmy Connors. And then of course, having the chance to have him on our podcast, like I've been just giddy talking to close friends and family leading up to this, because uh, it does bring me back to my early childhood memories. And while he's got that podcast with his son, which is really cool and, and the connection that they have and how much fun it is for them to get together and do that on a regular basis. For me and, and my dad, you know, watching Jimmy Connors, those are my memories of of sitting on the couch with my old man and, and falling in love with tennis. So kind of special to, uh, to have him on. And, um, you know, for any of you out there, his podcast, Advantage Connors, check it out. Lots of fun to listen to. And, and his book that I'm rereading actually right now, The Outsider, um, which is exactly what he was for most of his career, uh, the, the outsider looking in. But what a great champion. And, and I know you mentioned looking back on his results and records, some pretty fantastic stuff that he accomplished in his career. Yeah, yeah, it's unbelievable. I, I don't think he gets uh, enough credit, but one of those records that Roger Federer is still, of course, on the hunt and on the chase for that we've discussed, obviously, in the past is that singles title record, 109 career singles titles. Um, just an unbelievable number and it was great sort of hearing him talk about what he called a sophomore slump in 1975 <laughs> when he when he only made three grand slam finals i only made the final three times i thought that was right. pretty hilarious and the three that he showed up to also because he wasn't playing exactly. the, the aussie open back then. and that's crazy to me like he's got eight slams but to me he's he's a legend beyond that level of achievement which is still a fantastic Definitely. level of achievement because he only played the Aussie Open twice in his lengthy mm-hmm. career. And as he mentioned, he also missed the French Open for about four or five years, right during his prime time in the mid-70s because, because of his commitment to playing world team tennis and, and some politics that were going on there. So just imagine what he could have accomplished if he had played the Aussie Open. And of course, he wasn't the only one. That tournament kind of was neglected at the time due to travel, I guess, at the time. And and as we mentioned with Jimmy, you know, that all-time record was not nearly as big of a deal back in that day to people. 
Yeah, exactly. It, it wasn't like the, the end-all be-all for, for great tennis champion. You have to have the Grand Slam record. And now that's all we discuss. Um, and we'll, we'll segue into the U.S. Open there because we, we should talk about just an overall kind of evaluation of these two weeks because it was completely new experience. We knew we wouldn't have uh, fans in attendance. We knew there were strict protocols in place and just the overall atmosphere would be completely different. You take out the electricity of a New York crowd. What's this tournament going to be like obviously we had um, a couple issues with COVID-19 we saw the top doubles team um, banished from the tournament uh, relation to COVID-19 before the event started Benoit Paire tested positive for COVID-19 and then there were protocols in place for fellow French players who were uh, you know not socially distanced from him so there were little dynamics that that could have changed this event but all in all, I, I thought it worked, and uh, I, I thought it was a successful event on, on both sides. Yeah, I mean, there were some blips on the way, but how could you have avoided them given the magnitude of what's going on outside of the tennis court? Uh, I think overall, yeah, that the tournament was a success because if you go back to early summer, midsummer, when we were talking on the podcast, it was like, hey, is this event even going to happen? And I think I was kind of feeling pessimistic every time it came up saying, I don't see how it's going to be able to get pulled off. So they did it. They completed it, women's, men's draw, doubles draw, um, wheelchair draw. And so that right there to me says it was a success. Um, tennis in a bubble can work if it's done properly. Um, uh, getting ahead of myself a bit, the French Open, that's going to be a different animal because they are having fans. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I got used to the fact that there weren't any fans there pretty quickly, just as I have in other sports that I'm watching at the moment. And I'm just so focused on what is going on on the tennis court that I've kind of forgotten about. And yeah, obviously we're missing that, that electricity and that excitement, but it's pretty incredible how fast you adapt to that, I think, from a fan perspective. Yeah, yeah, I felt uh, get that I got pretty used to, to watching the tennis after just a day or two. I, I mean, when they do the wide shots and they, they pan out and show the entire stadium, you see how large Arthur Ashe Stadium is. And there's, you know, there there are a few people in it. Obviously, they're the coaching teams. And interestingly enough, I hadn't considered that we would actually have players coming down from their little hotel spots, eating their dinner and watching tennis. That was completely new. And we haven't really seen that before. Uh, that was kind of an interesting uh, little change to the tournament but uh, yeah you're right overall once you're immersed in the tennis and and the great points and uh, spectacular play that we are seeing you do forget about that element uh, and lack of a crowd and I felt that way watching other sports whether it's been NHL NBA playoffs because uh, the magnitude of the event you know it's so high you know it matters that you feel the players are getting up to it getting up to it and they're motivated to perform yeah, I want to talk for a second about what it was like for us to cover our first slam as we did have yeah. our media credentials. And I never could have been able to go down this year to New York to, to cover it live because of family obligations. Um, so it actually kind of worked out perfectly that they had this, this option to do it virtually. And I hope moving forward, you know, past 2020, that tournaments will perhaps allow media to cover virtually, even if it's a half and half. I mean, it lightens the load for them in terms of people they have to accommodate. Uh, exactly. In terms of, uh, you know, whoever is sending you to cover an event, uh, travel costs, hotel costs, things like that are brought down. So it's almost like a win-win. Mm -hmm. What did you find were some of the benefits to covering the event remotely? Well, uh, I mean, it's something that's going to be an unforgettable experience for me because I've never covered and had an accreditation to any Grand Slam ever. So this is the first one. So uh, just the, that unique experience, uh, I, I found it really 
funny actually watching back um, Vasek Pospisil after his win over Milos Raonic. Um, I didn't expect when I joined the virtual call on Zoom that they'd hand me the first question. Um, so they said, oh, Ben from Matchpoint Canada, you're up. And I had a, a series of a few questions in a row that I asked Vasek. And then I watched it back actually later when it was up on the media site. And it was funny because they take you, the Zoom caller, and put you like front and center on the screen there. So it's like me facing, facing Vasek virtually. I, I thought it was a, a pretty amusing dynamic and very, very cool. Um, you know, that, that's as close as I'll ever like be front and center on a camera at a press conference and the only reason for that is it's because it's virtual i didn't realize at first that when we were in the virtual press conference that the players did get to see that screen right. in front of them mm -hmm. and that you could go back and watch press conferences and see everybody and then off to the side and the other little squares you know kind of like the brady bunch or whatever you see all the other reporters who were just sitting there waiting for their turn or who were taking it all in and Boy, once I realized that, I was like, oh, my God, I hope I wasn't, like, you know, picking my nose or, like, <laughs> exactly. talking to one of my kids, you know, on mute or something yeah, in the, in yeah. the sidelines. But uh, it was a neat setup, and uh, we got fantastic access to all the Canadian players. So we have to thank the USTA for giving us um, pretty much open access to, to everyone. And we spoke to everybody at the event, and some of them multiple times, like Vashik and, and Felix, for sure. And mm. the players were great with us, whether it was a win or a loss, you know, they were very candid and open and so I felt like you know it was really good for our podcast um, and for our Canadian listeners and, and fans of Canadian tennis players to get that kind of access to the players so uh, big big thumbs up from me the way the whole thing worked out and and being able to do a late night press conference at like 1 30 in the morning and then hop into bed immediately afterwards I like that I could get used to that part for sure yeah, kudos to you for staying up for the entire Denis Shapovalov-Pablo Carreño Busta match and then joining the virtual call on Zoom to, to get a couple <laughs> questions in. Uh, and you're right, the Canadians were so, so generous with their time. Um, easier to do so maybe when you are winning. And, you know, I think we had pegged Milos Raonic at the front end of this event as our Canadian to go deep and make a run. And, and for good reason. He played fantastic in the Cincinnati tournament before reaching the finals. But we were talking about three Canadians and singles in the round of 16 for the first time ever. And it was Felix Dennis and, and Vashik Pospisil. Um, so uh, a great, unique storyline as we always seem to get with Canadian tennis players. And like we're right back to it uh, the moment we return to tennis it's just great yeah another historic I mean it seems like there's so many each year there's there's new historic heights that Tennis Canada is reaching and we're expecting that that's going to continue given the the promise of our young players and and our veterans too but if you had told me that three Canadians would have made the second week of the open on the men's side I would have certainly pegged Milos Raonic for being one of them and uh, and so that was a disappointment for him given how hard he trained in the offseason and how well he performed in the western and southern uh, you know quote-unquote Cincinnati uh, event at the same site just the week before so that was surprising and yet when you look at how well Vashik's been playing not all that surprising or I should say you could see it going that way in, in yes. hindsight and and with what Vashik's accomplished in his year back on the tour and for Vashik it didn't end with Milos we kind of thought okay well he, he beat you know Milos who he's known so well from such a young age and obviously has a, an insight to that game that helped him in that match but who knew he's going to take out RBA, Roberto Bautista Agu, and, and that proves that Vashik is, uh, is the real deal right now. 
Yeah, yeah, he's been playing sensational tennis when we've had tennis. We talked about how great he was looking at the front end of 2020, um, making that finals run in Montpellier, and just a lot of signature wins on his resume, I fear, fear, uh, feel, pardon me, over the last like year of tennis, beating a lot of top 20 players. That win over Danil Medvedev was surely a confidence boost. Uh, but you would think Roberto Bautista Gut would be a problem matchup for him, just like a terrific counter-punching, grinding player. But Vashik served so well. Uh, through the whole tournament. Finally, was was undone by Alex Diemenauer, but this is a great tournament for him. He's, I think, charging towards the top 50. It was really funny when we were asking if he if he had any ranking goals and he said about his ranking, I'm kind of over it, but uh, I'm sure in the back of his mind, he would love to get back inside the top 50. And uh, I think he can go a, a step further of that. He feels like a top 30 player right now to me. Yeah. I mean, for Vashik, you wish there were more tournaments to close out 2020, because certainly I feel like that top 50 would be doable for him. And uh, as you mentioned, the serving was fantastic. He was the, the ace leader through, I think the first, uh, what was it, two or three rounds anyways, mm-hmm. which you wouldn't have necessarily expected, but what an exciting style of tennis and aggressive tennis that he was playing and the confidence this will surely give him moving forward. So kudos to him. On the other side of things, the two young guns uh, for Canada on the men's side, Denis Shapovalov and Felix Auger-Aliassime. How would you assess the tournament for, for both of them and how things ended ultimately? Yeah, starting with Denis Shapovalov, I think a great, great tournament in the sense of resilience. He so easily could have bowed out in the third round playing very good American player in Taylor Fritz and someone who's had a very similar kind of career trajectory. He's just uh, a couple years older than Dennis, but uh, another kind of young and next-gen player who continues to take strides. And, and Fritz was, you know, serving as that match at one point, trying to serve it out, at least in the fourth set. And for Dennis to completely turn it around when he looked like he was down and out, wins a fourth set tie break, and then kind of just hits the gear another level in the fifth set was was amazing to see and taking that around further. I think for certain Canadian fans, there's a sense of disappointment in Dennis because the draw opened up because Djokovic was gone. You see a name like Pablo Carreño Busta. You're thinking maybe there's a path for him to even get to the final. So in that sense, it's disappointment, but you have to realize this is Dennis's first ever quarterfinal at a Grand Slam. And, you know, he hadn't been past the fourth round of a Grand Slam since the U.S. Open three years ago, 2017. So, and that's this crazy. Was, that's yeah, just remarkable yeah. to think because he was only 17 years old at the time. Um, so. and, we know, and we know he's a much ten- better tennis player now than, than he was then. So that's I right. feel like he was a little bit snake-bitten at slams uh, for the past couple of years. And uh, I think we would have felt the same had he lost to Taylor Fritz. So for him to come back and win that match gets the fourth round win as well. Quarterfinals is a, is a terrific result. And unlike Nick Kyrgios, we give Pablo Carreño Busta lots of credit for the tennis <laughs> yes. player that he is. And uh, he's, a, he's a tough one to face, no doubt. And uh, look what he did. I mean, he was up two sets to none in the semis against Zverev. And you thought, oh, my goodness, he's going he's gonna to go to the finals. And, yeah. uh, and so he was very close to doing that. Um, in that match, that very late night match, um, when Chapo took the fourth set six love, I was thinking, wow, things are really clicking. PCB's looking tired, and, uh, and Dennis admitted afterwards in post-match that he did not expect uh, Carreño Busta to come back in the fifth looking so fit and so fresh, and I, I feel like at, at a certain point when he was down a couple breaks in that fourth, he decided, all right, what's the point of, of wasting energy and trying to fight right. back, and, uh, and kind of lulled Dennis into a false sense of, of security, but another learning experience for Dennis, and, and as you mentioned, quarterfinals, I mean, he is, he is making that progress, and, and I think 
along with the, uh, the work on his mental game that he's doing right now, taking on a psychologist at the uh, suggestion of his coach, Mikhail Yuzhny, can only help Dennis because that is definitely the area we've agreed and, and spoken at length over the last year or so that he does need to make some, some strides in. Yeah, certainly. And he actually uh, gave credit to his girlfriend on court, who's a, also a tennis player on the women's side, um, that basically he said she's, she's helped him with his mental game in the sense of trying to maintain a positive attitude on court. We saw some of those bouts of frustration, understandably, about, against Pablo Carreño Busta, but uh, I think it's still a far cry from what we saw at the Australian Open at the front end of the year against uh, Martin Fuksevich, where he was really kind of struggling to control the emotions and letting them get the best of him and then in turn affecting his tennis. So I thought he did a lot better of a job managing those emotions on court uh, this, these past two weeks. Agreed. Agreed. Now we got to talk about Felix. Yep. Uh, we can't forget about Felix who also had a great slam result, personal best slam result. Uh, he looked just lethal in defeating Andy Murray and, uh, and Mute, the Frenchman as well, uh, before getting a lesson against Dominic team. First set was good, looked good against team. And then six, one, six, one really shows you the, the gap there. And, um, and, and what's your assessment on, on that match and, and the result overall for our, our 20 year old, uh, FAA. Well, incredible result overall, fourth round at a major for the first time in his career. And he pointed out before, uh, in terms of lacking kind of a major grand slam result, uh, that he's missed several in the past, whether it's been due to injury or some other reason. So finally having that opportunity to really work his way into a tournament, uh, I, I think he, he took that opportunity that presented himself. He had a tricky first match against Montero, but then really hit another level the next two. Uh, and then Dominic team, this one kind of felt like, a bit of a teacher versus a pupil thing because there are elements to both of these players games that are quite similar. Felix and Dominic, both incredibly athletic, dangerous players. Their movement is off the charts. They can both serve big team with a big kick serve. And I, I felt like team was just a little bit better in all facets. And then you get that sort of score line which isn't so friendly in those second and third sets six one six one so Felix was a bit overwhelmed but I thought that was more about just how well Dominic team was playing and team really played an incredible tournament especially round of 16 on through quarter semis you look at him beating Daniil Medvedev in straight sets I don't think there's any shame at all losing straight sets to the eventual champion uh, of the tournament and and team you know he, he's been to four Grand Slam finals now and finally has that first win uh, no shame at all in this result yeah, for sure. And we'll talk about team a little bit later. Uh, we also want to touch on the uh, Canadian females in the tournament. Unfortunately, for Sharon Fishman in doubles, it uh, didn't quite work out. She went down in her first match. Gabby Dabrowski, as always, uh, I shouldn't say as always, but as we're accustomed to, did make the second week of the slam. Although, as she mentioned to me in our one-on-one -on -one afterwards, um, you know, she only played two matches before getting to that, uh, that quarterfinal stage because the draw was uh, somewhat reduced. So, um, for her, it was a little bit unfulfilling, would have liked to have gone further um, than she did. But but still, Gabby, you know, the one that we can count on here in Canada yeah. to regularly make it uh, to that stage of a draw and, um, you know, didn't get, I don't think the respect that she deserved was kind of overshadowed by all the attention being lumped on the three Canadian men that made it to the second week for the first time. And, um, you know, we should say, though, that there were plenty of fans on social media that were coming to Gabby's defense and reminding the Canadian media not to forget about Gabby 
Dabrowski. And yeah, um, we uh, and I, I should note as well because Yelena Ostapenko did not travel and play the U.S. Open, and that was the previous partnership that I think Gabby had been working on and growing as as a doubles team with Ostapenko and her baseline firepower. So this was a pretty difficult move to pick up a new partner in Allison Risk and just try and make it work. So for her to still make the quarterfinals, of course, she had the default from the world number one team uh, having to exit the the tournament and get defaulted. But but still, that's pretty difficult when you're essentially operating with a brand new partner. Yeah, I know that's a good thing to to keep in mind as well. And and she wouldn't have been the only doubles player to have to adjust and play with someone else either, as you had sort of the European, you know, group of players and then the North American group of players. And uh, and we'll see how it works now in reverse at the French Open. Uh, we'll end on a Canadian note uh, before we move on to the eventual tournament winners. But Layla Annie Fernandez, who we have talked to so many times already on the podcast and who just turned 18 a few days ago, is now into the top 100 on the WTA Tour. And she did that, uh, you know, thanks to her win over Vera Zvonareva, a former world number two in singles, a former U.S. Open finalist in singles, who oddly enough captured the doubles title with her first title in New York after a 14-year gap. So that was a cool story for for Zvonareva, but that was a good win for Layla Annie. Uh, she did go out against Sophia Kennan in uh, two close sets, uh, and there's no shame in that whatsoever. But for Layla Annie into the top 100, this is just another positive step forward and another one of those goals that she's checking off her list. And, uh, and someone to certainly keep an eye on here, not just in terms of Canadian tennis, up-and-coming players, but overall, she's one under 20 to, uh, to definitely watch. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad she's finally checked off that milestone, not only the first career Grand Slam win uh, in a main draw, which she produced, as you said, over Vera's Vonareva, but but also finally breaking into that top 100, because when the tour was halted, she was very, very close to that top 100. And I, I think if we had had a full calendar season, she would easily be top 75 right now. And this isn't my bias speaking. I think she could potentially be top 50 if we had had a full calendar season. You look at the way she had been playing. Hey, I was looking through my copy of Tennis Magazine recently, and uh, I'm not just saying that because we're a part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, but uh, going through that, and she was mentioned in two separate articles, one by our friend Blair Henley, and uh, one by a buddy of mine, Ed McGrogan. So, you know, the fact that a publication like that is starting to talk about her as one of those under 20 names to uh, look for a breakout from, and we're seeing that breakout, actually, I feel like this year with some of her results and some of her victories. So, you know, great job, Leila Annie, and, uh, and keep it going. It's, it's wonderful to have another Canadian in the top 100. And, you know, the men's side, and we're talking about all the depth there this past fortnight. Hey, on the women's side, when we get a healthy Bianca Andreescu, you put Leila Annie in there and a resurgent Jeannie Bouchard, and in doubles, Gabby Dabrowski, that's a heck of a Fed Cup squad too. Yeah, yeah, and, and I thought uh, the Fed Cup actually – Fed Cup team actually back in February performed pretty admirably considering they didn't have Bianca Andreescu there on the squad. I mean, she was there physically, but unable to perform. They, they actually held their own weight and were, were doing so with Gabby Dabrowski being forced to play singles matches and Layla Fernandez. Then at age 17 months ago, beating a player like Belinda Bencic, she just turned 18 years old, by the way, just in the last week. So a happy birthday as well to Layla. And you're right, when this uh, Canadian team is healthy, very, very dangerous in Fed Cup. Hey, before we move on, maybe just a quick uh, discussion on Bianca Andreescu, um, because after months and months of, you know, pretty much radio silence from her team and then her Instagram post uh, on her reasons for missing the U.S. Open due to not feeling match ready and what was going on with COVID and that uncertainty, 
her coach Sylvain Bruno kind of opened up on uh, CTV Montreal, a uh, Canadian station there, uh, in an interview just a few days ago, and mentioned that actually, in fact, it is an injury that has kept her out that was sustained in practice. Uh, end of June, I believe, beginning of July, somewhere in that time frame. Didn't say exactly what the injury was, but when asked if she would be playing in the French Open, he said it's going to be really tight for that to happen. So how do you interpret those comments and, and what should Bianca fans um, be thinking at this time? Yeah, well, if I'm being honest, if I'm interpreting that, that's implying that the, the answer is likely going to be no. I, I don't expect, especially because we're already into Rome qualifying right now, Bianca's not there, that I, I don't think the first tournament back for her is going to be the French Open. I think if they were confident enough in the health of her body right now, if that foot was perfect, if everything was clicking, they would have already made that travel over uh, for the European clay court swing, which is, of course, a very short clay court swing right before you're already playing another Grand Slam tournament. So uh, I don't think we are going to see her on the clay. Perhaps if we get the Asian hard court swing later in, the, later in the fall, maybe it's conceivable they feel confident enough that she's ready to return and play. But uh, I, I don't think this spells great news in all likelihood for her 2020 season that we even see her on the court. Yeah, given how guarded her team is usually in talking about her status, the fact that Sylvain would come out and, and say this to me is kind of like, you know, planting that seed in our minds that uh, don't get exactly. your hopes up, unfortunately. And I don't know about you, I couldn't see her going all the way to Asia to, to start her 2020 season when the year is all but done. So right. I, I think folks were probably going to have to wait till 2021 and, and hope that by then, you know, everything is healed up and, and she can get some good luck and, and get back to business because it, it is troubling and it is concerning how many injuries she's had at such a young age. And, and then when you think of how much potential there is there, it just makes it that much more tragic that we're, we're not seeing her playing right now. So Bianca, get healthy. And, uh, you know, we'll hopefully be able to have her on the podcast sometime soon and, and get her to divulge a little bit more information on what's happening. And in her absence this year, we have a, a new U.S. Open champion on the, uh, the women's side, uh, but, but not new because she, she'd done it before a couple of years ago in Naomi Osaka. Yeah, what a what an incredible run and an incredible tournament from Naomi Osaka. It almost felt fitting that we got the final between Naomi Osaka and Victoria Azarenka. It was the match that we missed two weeks ago for the Cincinnati final at the Western and Southern Open, uh, where Osaka pulled out due to injury. And, and, you know, I was watching her earlier in this event kind of navigate her way through the first week a couple tough matches here and there but she seemed to get better and better in every match and i had this concern in the back of my head every time i watched because she had the taping on her thigh dealing with a bit of a hamstring issue that i wondered physically is she going to hold up for two weeks and possibly win this thing but when you watch the level of tennis that she was producing day after day getting stronger and stronger i thought she absolutely has the tennis to do it and a fantastic final fantastic quarter and semifinal as well i think one of the matches of the tournament actually was her three-set win over jennifer brady and credit to brady what a fantastic tournament she played absolutely reaching her first semifinal but also how fitting just in the realm of, of social justice and the kind of year that we've dealt with in 2020 naomi osaka kind of standing up and making herself a voice for racial injustice and, and change and she had seven different masks for 
seven seven different match wins that she would go out on court with every day. For example, the Breonna Taylor, the George Floyd, Amon Arbery, um, all a representation of uh, lives lost due to due to racial injustice and and police brutality. So she sent the message loudly and clearly uh, off the court messaging and on the court with her game and uh, such a worthy champion. Yeah, uh, where to start here with Naomi Osaka because there's so much to talk about and there's just so much depth to her and I don't just mean on the tennis court. We've known for some time how great she is on the court. Uh, I remember the first time I saw her at the Rogers Cup live in 2017. I was just blown away by her game and uh, obviously she's got the two slams previous to this one. But now she's really added to her overall completeness as a tennis player, I think, in terms of her confidence and self-belief and that self-belief on the tennis court and that belief in her, her voice and her ability to use it also off the court. And, you know, I think and, and I hope that, um, you know, the awareness that she raised over the course of her seven matches, that that resonated with people. And it wasn't just like, oh, she's wearing a new mask. Like, yeah. you know, in one of those interviews after the match, Renee Stubbs was almost like getting giddy over the fact that there'd be a new mask. But it's like, well, can we please get to what's behind the mask and what actually the meaning is there? And, right. uh, and so I'm, I, I hope and I think that for many people, um, you know, that opened their eyes a little bit. And Naomi is just at the age of 22, such a great role model already. And um, so I think the confidence herself in herself off the court has also translated into making her a bit more sort of calm and, and consistent on the court. And, um, you know, when asked how she was going to celebrate this one, I think she said she was just going to be better equipped to process this win where after her first U.S. Open and everything that happened there, and there's no need to touch on that again, and her yeah. second win in Australia, where afterwards she really suffered sort of a, an identity crisis and couldn't handle all the attention, she's better equipped to process it. So I think she's really going to enjoy this one in a different way. And uh, she's already tied for fourth in terms of active women Grand Slam winners, tied with uh, Angie Kerber. Um, and so uh, I think with the number of years ahead of her and how her game seems to really be evolving in a positive way um, in recent months. Uh, there, there's no doubt that she's going to, uh, I think, add to that hall and, and climb her way up that, uh, that list. Yeah, yeah, that, that's very well said. You, you look at some of the veteran names that I think we think of on the tour, as you said, Angie Kerber, Kerber Simona Halep, a Garbina Muguruza for Osaka to already be in that realm and eclipse, eclipse a couple of them on the Grand Slam tally with three. You look at her all-court game and what she can do at the back of the baseline. Her movement to me and her athleticism, her fitness has greatly improved over the last six months. I, I think we're, we're witnessing a player that when she is mentally sound and, and everything is calm and cool, and collected for her on the court she is as dangerous as as they come and, and I think we could be looking at at an all-time great in the future two more uh, players that we want to touch on just briefly uh, and those are the veterans Serena Williams who uh, lost in the semi-finals against Victoria Azarenka and that's the, the second player I want to talk about as well and and for Serena first of all uh, I mean do we look at this as a positive result is this just another sort of roadblock that um, you know how much longer does she have to continue to try and and persevere and, and to get to number 24 and perhaps number 25 in terms of the, the slam count. Not that it really matters to me. I think she's already really got the record in my mind and, and many people's minds, most people's minds probably as well. But, yeah. um, you know, this was a, a tournament where, you know, there were a lot of players missing and, uh, and for Serena, perhaps that was, that was helpful. Um, against Azarenka, I, it was looking good 6-1 after taking that opening set. And then clearly, um, you know, she wasn't equipped to uh, to get over the finish line. 
What, what do you think for Serena? What does this one mean um, for, for her moving forward? Well, perhaps she is running running low on time or uh, fighting against time with every Grand Slam that unfortunately passes because she has been a part of this race for 24, whether whether that is fair or not, but really publicly, her coach Patrick Moradoglu made it clear that this is the chase right now. This is what she is playing for to tie and eclipse that record. So it is unfortunate for her and, and her camp anytime another Grand Slam passes and she isn't able to get uh, that number 24. So semifinals, you know, for any other player, I, I look at some of these wins, I would say a great tournament. I still think it was a very good tournament for Serena Williams. We just know the exceptionally high standard that she is held to. We just know the expectation her fans have of her any given night. They expect her to win. They expect her to dominate. And she had some, she had some great wins along the way. You look at Sloan Stevens, who for the first time and God, it feels like a year and a half or two years Sloan was playing some good tennis and, and Serena overcame that challenge in the third round, gets a three-set win. Maria Sakari, one of the fittest players on tour, really, really strong baseliner. She overcomes her in three sets, beats the fellow mom in Parankova. Sorry, we don't need to talk about moms anymore. No more because, mom talk, right, right. <laughs> because that theme was kind of beaten to death over the past couple of weeks. And then Victoria Azarenka in the semifinal, who I, I really thought Azarenka just played a fantastic third set. Uh, Serena did have an issue with her Achilles uh, that she had to have taped up. It didn't really seem to actually affect her, though, physically. It was just the weight of the ground strokes from Azarenka taking the ball early and dictating play. You could see Serena, all the fight, the competitive spirit and the drive is, is still there. She wants it so badly. I, I truly believe that. Um, and, and in this case, she, she just ran into a better player on that day. Azarenka was on fire. So all in all, as a whole, I actually felt like Serena played quite a good tournament. And you, we look at the prior events, the couple of lead-ups in Lexington and Cincinnati, we were a bit concerned about her form. I actually thought she definitely rose, rose to the occasion, bringing her level up for a U.S. Open. Uh, and she said immediately in her press conference after the last... Uh, after the loss, she's she's going to Paris, so she will be at Roland Garros. She wants another opportunity and a crack at this thing. Yeah, no doubt about that. And and Azarenka, before we wrap the women's draw up, uh, I mean, she's been through so much adversity in recent years. She's had so many tough draws. Every draw, it seems like she's playing a terrific player in the opening round or or the second round. And and this now is going to do wonders for her ranking between you know Western and Southern uh, Cincinnati draw. And, and doing that, and now U.S. Open making it to the finals. I mean, she's up to number 14 on the WTA Tour, so this is just going to make things that much better for her where she can start a tournament on her own terms and, and work her way into it. Um, and, and to think she was considering retirement earlier this year, um, let that be a lesson to anybody to, you know, perhaps try and go a little bit longer, push a little bit further. And uh, I, I just, I love Victoria Zarenka on the court, off the court, even in post-match press after losing, uh, she's got some humor in defeat. She was asked a question by Ubaldo, and uh, I don't even need to say his last name because you know, you know Ubaldo. And, yes. uh, and he was asking you know, what she was thinking in that moment when she was up a set and two love and 40-30. And Vika just said, you know, I hope you have another question because that one kind of blows. And she just started kind of <laughs> laughing lyrically. And I was like, that's awesome, you know, that she's yeah. got enough experience and can put this into context and, and, and kind of quickly come to grips with it, that even though it was painful as she admitted it, um, you know, she wasn't going to hang on to it for too long. So great to see her back and, and someone who now is, is certainly, I'd put her back up there in terms of the, the dangerous threats. And, and if she goes into slams having a seed, 
then definitely I think we'll be seeing more quarterfinal, semifinal, potentially beyond appearances for, for Vika. Oh, absolutely. And I, actually, to me, if you took just a single match best performance of the entire tournament, it would be her quarterfinal win against Elise Mertens. 6-1, 6 love against a very informed Mertens. And Azarenka just completely blew her off the court. It was a clinical per- performance start to finish. And, you know, that semifinal with Serena felt like this throwback to 2012. We used to watch these two greats have these incredible clashes. And this is the first time in 11 tries at a Grand Slam that Azarenka was finally able to beat Serena and falls to Osaka in the final. And uh, I should say, as we segue over to the men's side, for me, the women's side had much more of the excitement, a much higher quality, I felt, just in terms of matches uh, that we had some very kind of, you know, iffy performances on the men's side as we went quarterfinals and on some kind of sloppy, nervy tennis. And then we finally got to a five-setter in the final where Dominic team overcame Sasha's Vera falling from behind two sets forces a fifth set tiebreak. And I really don't recall ever seeing a fifth set tiebreak quite like this in tennis before. It's funny, the men's side, I mean, not to compare too much to the women's, but uh, I don't know. I didn't find it less exciting. I felt like between the, the Canadians and what they were doing, I really got caught That's up in right. that. No, you're and right. then the whole Djokovic situation was just so like <laughs> WTF that I just, you know, to me, that was a real head scratcher. Like, dude, how can you blow an opportunity like this over, you know, some frustrations? And he was carrying some odd frustration with him, I felt like, in this tournament, even up to that point, you know, yeah. getting, getting angry unnecessarily. And I, who knows what people are carrying off the court and bringing onto the court with them. And, and who knows how COVID and being apart from family and, and friends and the bubble and all that is affecting people. But he just seemed off, you know, mentally speaking, in a lot of ways. And even in that match, he had thrown a ball or hit a ball, sorry, into one of the side barriers. And yeah. it was almost like it was coming. You could sense something bad was coming, and uh, whether it was tennis-wise or otherwise. And, and then when he hit that, uh, that line judge, you knew, you knew it was. And it doesn't matter who it was. I don't care what the conspiracy theorists are saying out there. It could have been Roger Federer. It could have been, you know, Jesus Christ himself. I mean, if you, if you hit someone <laughs> with a tennis ball like that, that's it. You're defaulted. That's how it works, right? So... I'm not yep. going to argue that or get into that again, but I felt like there was enough going on there to keep my attention captivated. And in the absence of Nadal, Federer, and ultimately the early absence of Djokovic, the unforeseen early departure of Djokovic, uh, I thought the team Zverev and Medvedev, you know, they're not the big three, but maybe they're the next three. And uh, I thought they did what they had to do under the circumstances. They did what they were supposed to do in getting to the semis and then team and Zverev ultimately to the final as well. And what a seesaw final. I'll let you take first crack at it because it's still just, you know, an hour or so ago that it ended for us as we record. And I'm exhausted from watching that fifth set, man. Yeah, there's, it's, it's hard to pick out the right adjectives to describe this final because it was definitely gripping. It, it absolutely caught my attention. We had stretches of terrific baseline points, seeing the best of both players. Varev can hit huge from the baseline. He played a great two sets. Team played very nervous and kind of erratic through the first couple of sets. He started to find his rhythm, probably change things a bit tactically, extend some rallies. Uh, but it was just so unusual. You felt like the final few games... 
there were so many opportunities for Zverev to just go ahead and seize the title. He had an opportunity at 5-3 to serve it out. Then Team has an opportunity at 6-5 in the fifth to serve it out and can't do it. And then Team is hobbled, barely moving in the tie break, like stretching out his back leg. He looked like he was totally cramping up. I, I didn't think he had energy, any energy, any, any gas left in the tank to possibly do this. And we saw the double faults creep back into Zverev's game. And I, I knew whoever lost this match, unfortunately, I feel like they're going to have nightmares over it for weeks. So I'm sorry that somebody did have to lose this match. You could just feel the tension rising so much that there was so much at stake for both players seeking out that first Grand Slam title. But to, to me, Dominic Team is the worthy champion. I thought if you're going to pinpoint who played the best tournament overall through seven matches at the U S open on the men's side, it was absolutely Dominic team. I mean, we already talked about the straight sets win over Felix played a fantastic match against Daniel Medvedev. He, he was rolling through the, through his first week as well. And we were concerned about his form previously because he lost immediately in Cincinnati. We didn't know if uh, he would get into the level he had to, to, to play a great grand slam event. And he, he proved me wrong. So, so credit to him. Zverev, on the other side of the equation, he got himself to the finals. So you have to give credit to that. His match with Borna Cioric, a little patchy in the quarters. His match with Carreño Busta fell behind two sets to love and, and dug his way out of it. So I, I think optics-wise, there wasn't the prettiest tennis from Zverev on court for stretches of time. But kudos to him and his ability of in best of five matches, uh, having the ability to come back and win these matches. And I know this loss is going to be like devastating for him. I, I, hope, I hope he can get over it. It's absolutely crushing. And, and he will get over it. And he's got lots of time to eventually get over it. And I think on the positive side, which at some point he will you know, take some positives from it because – Man, we gave this guy a hard time for a long while. And when I say we, I we mean, did. you know, tennis media and, and fans as well. A really hard time for his lack of having the breakthrough at the slams. He had Masters finals. He had Masters wins. He had the ATP finals win in 2018. But he wasn't able to get even to the quarterfinals for a while at the slams. And then slowly started to make some progress. And, and now by making this final, that, that ends all that conversation. Um, he got there. He's done it. And I think now that's going to allow him to uh, swing more freely and, and make this more of a habit moving forward. But uh, what an odd final. I didn't think team was going to come out so nervous. I really thought he was going to come out as he had in his previous matches and just yeah. take it from the get-go. And then Zverev led in team back into it and getting to a fifth where it, as you mentioned, looked like team was going to be unable to even complete it physically speaking and when Zverev was up 5-3, you thought, okay, he's, he's got it now. And then he's got those double faults and the, you know, 60-some-odd mile-per-hour serves. Mm -hmm. And it's just it's too difficult to process what went on there for me. I need <laughs> another week before I can properly talk about it. But I think you did a good enough job summing it up. Um, ultimately, this is, is positive for both of these young players. And, uh, and really, you know, I think Team Zverev Medvedev looks like these are going to be the guys that take the – um, you know, the torch from the big three when they do wind it down. But uh, hey, we've got a slam coming up in uh, what, just a couple of weeks, basically, two, three weeks. And uh, we're going to see Nadal, we're going to see Djokovic there. And I think those guys are going to be like, uh, hey, don't forget about us. Here we are. And hopefully we get some great clashes between the older guard and this younger uh, generation as well that wants their chance. And, and that's what, you know, to bring it back to our guest this week, Jimmy Connors, he wants to see that intergenerational, like he doesn't want to see the young guys wait for retirements yes. from the big three. 
to have mm-hmm. their moment. He wants to see them seize it and take it and push those guys now while the big three are still playing fantastic tennis. And I want to see that too. So I think that was a great point from Jimmy Connors to sort of wrap things up perhaps here is let's see these two generations collide with some fantastic tennis and, and, and have it out before that torch does get passed. Yeah, the, I, I completely agree. We would love to see one from the other generation knock out a big three and pull off a grand slam. Hasn't happened that way yet. Maybe it will in the future. We'll have to see. Let's finish on the note of one other Canadian who was not competing at the U.S. Open, but she was posting a wonderful result elsewhere. Jeannie Bouchard reaching her first WTA final in four years, uh, getting to the finals of the Istanbul Open and following uh, falling to Patricia Maria Tig in a wild three-set match. Tig needed eight match points to finish this off. Jeannie Bouchard had a ba- her back against the wall multiple times in the thir- third set. She was down 5-3, kind of similar to Dominic Team actually, able to eventually force a tiebreaker served her way out of a hole down love 40 and then finally falls in the tie break but this tournament alone is boosting her all the way up to 163rd in the rankings and actually when you know when she spoke to us at the front end of july uh just just over a couple months ago her ranking was 339 so you look at this tremendous progress all it takes is one terrific tournament and she actually played well the previous tournament in Prague so to me this is a different Jeannie Bouchard uh, for a little bit of self-promotion uh, you can go to sportsnet.ca because I did write an article about Jeannie in this tournament of hers and, and getting to the final here uh, in Istanbul but such terrific signs now the question comes from people can she return to the top 100 I'm, I'm hopeful. I, I'm genuinely hopeful that she can. And, uh, you know, she had to come through qualifying just to, just to get in the main draw of this event. So six consecutive match wins before losing in the final. Awesome week of tennis. Big gains from Jeannie Bouchard since coming back from quarantine. And uh, we spoke to her, as you mentioned, right before it. And she sounded like she had the right mind frame. And then to, to transition that onto the court is something else. But she's done it. Played great at World Team Tennis. I mean, she was getting subbed yep. in at World Team Tennis for other singles players that you would have thought never would have needed Jeannie to come off the bench to help them. And she played great there. She played great in doubles there, too. I think being with a lot of those top players at WTT really also helped her confidence and showed her she belongs still, you know, within the top 100. And then Prague quarterfinals and now the finals in Istanbul. This must be so rewarding for Jeannie Bouchard. And I don't know about you, but just when I get asked about tennis players from, from friends and whatnot, uh, you know, just in my own life, I, I get asked about Jeannie Bouchard almost more than anybody else. What's mm-hmm. going on with Jeannie? What's wrong with Jeannie? Yeah. What's, you know? And, uh, and I've always been a pretty big defender of her. And, and I think for good reason and, and uh, too much negativity for the wrong reasons from outside people that really don't have a clue. And if you just kind of watched and paid attention, you'd see a hardworking tennis player that's trying her best to get back to where she feels she belongs. And, uh, and I think she's well on her way. And, and again, if we run out of tournaments for her to make that happen, in 2020, I think this has given her the boost she needs to, to come firing out of the gates next year and, and, and do what she needs to do to make herself relevant again on a more consistent basis. Yeah, and credit to her. I, I hope this partnership continues. But her coaching hire, which was initially a trial run, Renee Stubbs, I, I think Stubbs is offering some great insight to her game. And she described her as being very high energy. And sometimes Jeannie Bouchard is not so high energy. And she was talking about Renee is almost too much for her at sometimes. She joked uh, in Prague and in one of those Zoom press conferences. But uh, she's using that, using that energy to channel that into her game on court. And I, I certainly think it's helping 
uh, this week is, is just the example of that. And you look at the ranking now, uh, I don't think, you know, a few months ago, we would have ever thought she would have a chance to be competing at Roland Garros. But now with the ranking up to where it is, uh, she should get a place in qualifying, which is terrific. You're right. You're right. And she's played well on clay, too. So there you go. Um, mm-hmm. Hey, that brings us to a close on our U.S. Open wrap up. And again, I just want to say it one last time. Thanks to our guest, Jimmy Connors, which I've been wanting to say for quite a while now. It's just uh, I'm still riding a high on that one. So I hope you enjoyed that interview and the rest of our analysis. And and Ben, it's been a great two weeks with you, buddy. And uh, looking forward to, uh, to more great tennis and more Grand Slam tennis coming up soon, right? Yeah, yeah, looking forward to that. Looking to, forward to a, a bit of a better sleep schedule, I think, starting uh, starting tonight as well. That that will be great. And I, I should just mention, if you want to just hear Jimmy Connors and see him, the conversation is also up and available on YouTube on our account, Matchpoint Canada. You've been listening to Matchpoint Canada. We will talk to you next time.